open your Bibles to chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter for the third time. I know some of you are going for the third time. Oh, great. Well, there's so much. It's so rich. Uh, The crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Christ. Edgar Allan Poe, maybe some of you uh, have read his stuff. I encourage you to do that, especially you, those who are younger. They're not encouraged to read things like that, but uh, Edgar Allan Poe is a, is a wonderful author and, and, and poet. And he wrote a story, a short story, um, a horror story actually, called Premature Burial. And he tells the story of a man who is falsely pronounced dead and buried alive. Poe got this idea because in his time, in the 19th century, uh, there were misdiagnoses of people. People were thought to be dead who were not. And we know this from graves that have been exhumed over the century. And we find that there are claw marks inside the coffins. And so he drew from this and he wrote that chilling, chilling story. Out of that fear of being buried alive 150 years ago, there came an invention called the Bateson Revival Device. And this was simply a a, uh, string that was tied to the hand of the person in the coffin and through a thin tube was attached to a bell that was attached to their tombstone. So that if you were buried alive you could ring the bell and hopefully somebody was around that could then save your life. What John wants to make clear in our text today is that there was absolutely no need for the Bateson revival device to be attached to Jesus because Jesus, God incarnate, really Died. Look with me at verse 17. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus, with Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Any of the Jews reading this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests and the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took all his clothes and divided them into four shares, each one of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was a seamless, seamlessly woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened, the, the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. When they came to Jesus and found that he he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they would look on the one whom they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Father God, I pray for your power to preach this message to your people, and may it change my heart and their hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. This is the third Sunday on this text, and I just want to remind us where we are of of John's purpose for this section of Scripture. John's purpose. He has a purpose in writing this section. He wants us to see that this particular death, this particular crucifixion, which was very common in those days, was not ordinary. That this was an extraordinary day. And he wants us to get the big picture. So John is slowly telescoping us out so we can see this. First of all, he wants us to see, as we looked at several weeks ago, that Jesus was fulfilling the requirements of being the Messiah. And the first requirement we looked at was he was fulfilling the requirement of prophecy. Four times, if you kept count, in, in the, this brief reading, John says, so scripture might be fulfilled. John is drawing our attention to the fact that scripture is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the cross, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one that, that the Jews have been waiting for. 
He is the fulfillment of all the stories, of all the types, of all the prophecies. Then, as we saw two weeks ago, John draws our attention to another requirement, and that is the requirement for salvation. And he does this by, by drawing our attention to verse 30, where after Jesus takes the drink, he utters the last words, his last breath is, it is finished. And then he gives up his spirit. We looked at a couple weeks ago how this, this can be also translated, it is accomplished. What did he accomplish? He accomplished the law. He fulfilled the law. He lived a sinless life. And that is the requirement for salvation. If you want to work your way to God, as, as Doug has told us, everybody on campus wants to work their way to God. They want to earn their way. If you want to do that, it, it's actually in the Bible. Live a perfect life. Now, hopefully, you know and I know we can't do that even sitting right here. But Jesus did. And Jesus says, I accomplished it. I did it. He fulfilled the requirement for salvation. But thirdly, and this is what I want us to focus on today, is he fills a third requirement that John wants us to see, and that is the requirement of sin. I find it exceedingly interesting that John includes the burial narrative here in verses 38 through 42. Why does he do that? In fact, if you go back and and read all the Gospels, each Gospel writer was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write pretty much this same account, his burial account. Why is that? I mean, we could say, okay, he's fulfilling another prophecy here. And that's true. In Isaiah 59, we we read that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There's another fulfillment of, of prophecy here in these four verses. But if John wanted us to think that if John wanted to draw us in in that direction, he would have said for a fifth time, so that scripture would be fulfilled, wouldn't he? He doesn't write that. That's not where John wants us to go. I think the Apostles' Creed helps us in this area, and that's why I'm a big proponent of creeds. I think the Apostles' Creed helps us. We all know the Apostles' Creed. Let's, Let's say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived in the Holy Spirit, born stop, was crucified, died, and was buried. Okay, let me just give you a 10 seconds on ancient creeds. They labored over every single word they put in a creed. They wanted to distill it down into its simplest and most memorable form. And they focused on the most important things for us to remember. There's your 10 seconds on creeds. Why would the Apostles' Creed, why would they labor to put in and agree on Crucified, understand that. Died, understand that. 
and was buried. Why did John, why did all the inspired writers of the Gospels, why did the ancient fathers all want us to remember that he was buried? I think it's this, and it's simple, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, really died. They wanted us to realize that, that there was no Bates and Revival device necessary to put on Jesus' hand. He was really dead. They pierced his side, no reaction. They went to break his legs and noticed that he was dead. The Romans, who were experts in execution, didn't break his legs. They knew he was dead. And then they buried him. They took all the strips of linen and 75 pounds of spices and put it on his body. He was dead. His burial confirms beyond a shadow of a doubt that the body was lifeless. And the death of Jesus is critical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus is critical. It's a non-negotiable Because as Hebrews 9.22 states, and it tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without death, there's no forgiveness. Death is a necessary part of this. Death is a requirement for sin. That's what the corpus of scripture tells us, right? We all know Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But did you know that that scripture is rooted in Ezekiel chapter 3? Where Ezekiel writes, the wicked person will die for their sin. And Ezekiel was rooting what he was saying in the Levitical sacrificial system. Where God, for all his people, said, listen, when you sin, intentionally and unintentionally. In other words, when you know you you sin and you feel guilt, and when somebody brings it up to your attention, which, by the way, why church membership is so important, because we're in this together. Intentionally or unintentionally, you what you do is you bring a goat or another animal, and you bring it to the temple. And you bring it to a priest, and the priest takes the goat from your arms and holds it, and he ushers you to come closer, and he takes your arms, and he places your hands on the goat's head, thereby symbolically transferring that sin to the goat. It's a very visceral, very tactile, very tangible symbolism here. And then he takes two steps back from you, and while you're still looking, he slits the goat's throat, and the blood starts pouring out, and the goat goes limp. He wanted his people to feel and to see and to use the senses to realize that when you sin, it requires death. That sin is serious. And he wanted to, to, to work that into the grain of his people over the decades, over the centuries, and over the millennia. In fact, those are some of the first words that God says to his, 
his newly crowned creation he calls man, Adam. Some of the first words that God says to Adam is, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge that I've forbidden you to eat of, if you eat of that, if you disobey, if you sin, Adam, you will surely die. From the very beginning, sin equals death. And I wonder sometimes, in my own heart, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe not, how seriously I take sin. I mean, when I consume myself with 18 to 25 hours of thinking about this, this is where my own heart goes. And the blessing or the curse that you have sitting there is you get to ask and answer the same questions that's been put to me through Scripture. How seriously do I take sin? Do I really take it seriously? Do I really see how, how not only damaging it is, but what the real consequences of sin is? That if I lie, that action, those words actually require death. That if we judge someone for misspelling a word, that that action actually requires death. Teenagers disrespecting a parent with word or roll of the eyes or ignoring that action actually requires death. That if you say something to someone, you wouldn't say to their face, gossip. That as you're doing it, that action requires death. How seriously do we really take sin? Or do we think like the Victorians thought of the gray squirrel. You see, the Victorians, when they visited America in the mid-19th century, they fell in love with the American gray squirrel. And they took it back with them to England, thinking it would be a great addition to their forests. What they didn't realize is how damaging the gray squirrel would be to their indigenous red squirrel. Because the gray squirrel brought a form of pox with them that the gray squirrel is immune to, but it pretty much killed off the red squirrel in England. They didn't know what seemed like such a, a small and seemingly innocent action would, would wreak that much havoc. In most of our lives, we pre- approach sin the same way. All these little things that we do, all the thoughts that we have, Yeah, all the words that we say that are cutting and biting and sarcastic and hurtful. Maybe even some of the deeds that we do. They're significant and how dangerous it is. And we think it's not going to be that damaging. I mean, it's not going to hurt anybody. I I was at Governor's Restaurant having dinner with my family this week. And... When, and maybe you're like us, when our kids actually are 
able to eat off the children's menu. We like them to do that. And here's Jack, 11 years old. And I give him a children's menu. And he looks at me, and we've all gone through this. You want the adult menu. This is a rite of passage, right? He's 11. And I think, well, 12 and under, right? And Carrie nudges me and goes, it's 10 and under here. And I started to say, well, Jack, just say you're, you're, just order off it anyway. And don't say anything. And then I thought about what I was preparing here. That action requires death. How seriously do I take it? Oh, it's not going to hurt anybody. He's just, we're just going to get a meal for three or four bucks less. Who's going to know? Who cares? How many of those kinds of little things do we go through and we say, ah, it's not, not going to be damaging? How many, how many gray squirrel sins do we allow ourselves? If you learn nothing else from the death narrative of Jesus that we just read, at least come away with how serious Yahweh God takes sin. He takes it very seriously. We have a saying, you know, if, you, if you're trying to convey to somebody that something is very serious, we say, oh, it's as serious as a heart attack. Well, God takes sin as serious as a crucifixion. He's willing to allow his son to die. Not for his sin even, but for our sin. Sin equals death. Now, it's in this room with the gravity that that we hear from the the word and from the pulpit right now. You go in your mind, uh, I'm going to remember this. I guarantee you, you get out there and you have lunch and it's gone. The seriousness of your sin is gone. How do we keep this gravity? Because I think that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to keep this seriousness. How do we do that? In a world that is so distracting. But even, forget the world. In a people, in your mind, that is so fleeting. You'll forget it. We don't have the visceral reminder. When you come here next Sunday, I'm not going to slaughter a baby goat in front of you to tell you, to show you. You're not going to come on Thursday morning and say, here, I have this pigeon. Will you please kill it so I can remind? It's not how it works in the new covenant. We don't have the visceral reminder. So how are we going to remember? If indeed you want to even remember how serious it is. I think we do have a reminder right here. I think that's one of the reasons that God said, do this every time you come together. You know, when I say those words of institution, they're called, you know, Jesus on the last night, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. 
and he equates the bread with his body. That's the visceral reminder of the seriousness of sin. That we can experience on a weekly basis. That God takes sin as serious as a crucifixion. That his body was broken. That his body did bleed. That the requirement for sin is death. Even those gray squirrel sins. That someone has got to pay. That God just doesn't let it go. There are always consequences of sin. And I tell you, in my own life, and maybe yours, I I kind of treat sin and, and, and its effects with the worldly proverb, time heals all wounds. Meaning, you know, give it enough time, it'll fade. Give it enough time. Don't we treat sin like that? If you sin, you go, just give it enough time. Distance and memory will take care of it. The guilt will cease, maybe. At least the memory of it will cease. Maybe your spouse and you won't talk about it and it'll fade. Or you and your kids, or you and your best friend, I don't know. Time will heal all the wounds. That's how a lot of Christians approach sin. Just let it fade. Everything will be forgiven, forgotten. It'll be all right. But we have to realize that sin and its consequences don't go away. There's a beach in Cornwall, England. I didn't notice it until I was just reading it. There's two English illustrations here. There's a beach in Cornwall, England. It's unlike any other in the whole world. It's not for its ocean waves or its beach. It's because washing up every day on the surf are little Lego pieces. I knew that would get you, Daniel. Little yet Lego pieces wash up Thousands upon thousands every day. What happened was that in 1997, a a container ship sank off the coast of Cornwall, headed for America. And in one of those containers was about five million Lego pieces. No one knows exactly what happened next or even what was in the other containers, but the Lego pieces shortly thereafter started washing up on the shore. Interesting that a U.S. oceanographer, Curtis Ebsmeyer, started studying this and has been studying this Lego phenomenon, he's called it, for years. And he said something interesting. I want to read it to you. He said, The most profound lesson I've learned from the Lego story is that things that go to the bottom of the sea don't always stay there. He concludes by saying, The incident is a perfect example of of how even when inside a steel container, sunken objects... Don't stay sunken. If you're anything like me, I think that my sin gets sunk and it's gone. Give it enough time, give my memory enough time, and it'll fade. I'm I'm a minister of the gospel, and that's still how I deal with my sin. Isn't that ridiculous? Nobody sees, nobody knows, nobody knows the consequences. 
But what each one of us has to realize is that sunken objects don't stay sunken. Sin just doesn't go away. Numbers 23.32, Moses was trying to convey this to his people when he said, your sin will find you out. Sin doesn't go away. And if you're here today, and maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, maybe you consider yourself a, a moral person, that's why you came, but maybe you don't believe in Jesus Christ and trust him, that's okay. It's okay, we want you here. But I also want you to hear what I say next. The axiomatic truth is that sin does not disappear. It never does. It might wash up, not wash up on the shores of your life in this life. And that happens a lot. <laughs> I mean, as we go through the minor prophets in, in the next uh, 12 weeks or so in the future, you'll see that that's one of the great gripes of the people. Why do the wicked prosper? A lot of times, Lego pieces don't wash up in this life. But what scripture is replete with, and this is what I want you to hear, is that sunken items don't stay sunken. There will be a day. That's what Jesus was telling the crowds in Matthew 12. He said, I tell you, men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. That's what Paul was trying to convey to the Corinthian church when he wrote to them in his second letter, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He's trying to remind them what we are talking about today, that sunken items don't say sunken. They might not wash up on the shores and, and regurgitate in your life now, but one day they will. You'll stand before God. And everything is laid bare. And sin requires death. And the question the gospel asks, and the question the gospel is asking you, maybe you right now, is who do you want that penalty applied to? Do you want that penalty applied to you on that day? Because what the gospel offers is that Christ will take that penalty. That is what our text is about. That's the wonderful offer of the gospel. You don't have to take that penalty. Christ takes it for you. It's beautiful. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus offers to take your death penalty. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the movie The Last Emperor. It's a great movie. There's a scene in that movie where this young emperor, he's just a boy placed on the throne, He's in the lap of luxury as thousands of servants around him. 
and he's talking to his brother. And his brother asks the question, what happens when you do wrong? And the, the little emperor says, when I do wrong, someone else gets punished. And to show this, he takes a vase and he drops it on the ground. In the background, you see one of the servants being beaten. The beautiful and breathtaking reality is Jesus reverses that pattern. When the servants sin, the king gets punished. That's the gospel. That's the free offer. That's the freedom. That's the hope. That's the great reversal John is drawing our attention to in our text. That's the great reversal that this table tells us about over and over again. That's the great reversal that the gospel offers. Yep. Sin requires death. But if you're a Christian, when the servant sins, the king gets punished. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, I trust that you'll do your work much, much better than any of us could in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.